Warning, this podcast contains hot takes, cliched opinions and strong language. Welcome to Records and Bands, I'm Rob Jones. Each week I'm joined by a revolving cast of musicians and music lovers to talk nonsense about our favourite bands, just like we used to when we were kids. And today we're getting into the 1993 masterpiece from Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Dream. In the chair today, we have my little brother, songwriter and guitarist of Alvin and the Angry Barrels, Sam Jones. Hello. And because today's record might be one of the very best productions, if you like, of all time, we felt we should get some professional opinions on the show. So we've asked our resident tame producer, if you like, or Sam's tame producer, sound engineer, drummer and owner of AR Studios near Hereford, Ryan Jordan. He's come along to help keep us straight. Oh, yeah. when we're talking about technical stuff. Ryan has worked on many, many cool records, but perhaps his, he probably keeps his best work um, for an annual visit of Sam Jones when Sam does his Christmas single. So how is it working with this one, with his racket every Christmas? Yeah, it's good. Well, it's not actually at Christmas, it's ready for Christmas. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a nice one to look forward to each year. You're too kind, mate. You're too, I know you dread the message, really. <laughs> no. you, to, to be honest, you opened the floodgates a little bit this year, and I've been pestering you a little bit. So apologies for that, mate. No, no, I, it's uh... cool. I, I know you've <laughs> sent the uh, couple of demos across. It's just finding time to sit and have a proper listen through. <laughs> when you've got piles of stuff, I can't imagine. Uh... Yeah, yeah. Just wrapping up an album this week, so I'm hoping to get that finished off and then uh, a bit more free time. Right, so today's record we're talking about is Siamese Dream by the Smashing Pumpkins. It's the second studio album and was released on the 27th of July, 1993. So what's that, 29 years ago? About that? I'm going to just break it to you, Rob. I reckon that might be before Ryan was born. We were going to get into (laughs) this in a bit, I'm sure. The album has been considered one of the finest alt-rock albums of all time. Despite recording sessions fraught with difficulties and tension, Siamese Dream debuted at number 10 on the Billboard charts and eventually was certified four times platinum, with the album selling over 6 million copies worldwide. Four singles were released to support the album, Cherub Rock, Today, Disarm and Rocket. Rolling Stone has it ranked somewhere between the numbers 341 and 362 on different versions of their 500 greatest albums of all time. They couldn't pick one, apparently. After top 10, that's just a list, isn't it? That's just a random list, yeah. I reckon. Random well, generator. We, 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 <laughs> I, I only managed... I found a list of sorts for later on and from the NME, and it's just a bit weird, and we'll get into that later on. Um, my first entry to Smashing Pumpkins was probably Drown, and that was featured on the single soundtrack. Do you remember the Cameron Crowe film that was set in Seattle and had all the Seattle bands in it? It's got and then, um, the replacements on it. It's got Paul Westerberg on it. Right, yes, yeah. And I reckon I bought Siamese Dream around 94 because it wasn't long between buying this one that Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness came out and then I went and bought that one. Um, I remember they're quite close together. Um, and it was definitely a bit different to the other stuff that I was listening to, despite it being lumped into the same category. Um, obviously, it's a much, well, it's a big, massive sound, isn't it, compared to what what we call their peers, the, the big grunge bands. And really, the the only ones that I could feel like were getting close to similar similar levels of production would probably be Soundgarden with Super Unknown in '94, and then Down on the Upside in '96. Yeah, but I'm older than both of you, <laughs> but 
probably by away. So this is like this is definitely one of my records, and I was just wondering, Ryan, especially how you came to it because we've had a bit of a discussion about it when I was up in the studio with Sam last year. Yeah, so obviously it's a bit of a weird one with me because I wasn't born till '95. Uh, which is mad. Who's born in 1995. I left school in 1995. <laughs> oh, don't say things like that. <laughs> yeah, it's mad. So yeah, I kind of missed the the boom where it would have come out, and I think I probably first heard today would have been the first track of theirs I heard, and that would have been on uh, either Kerrang or Scuzz uh, on the TV one one day after school. So that would have been like probably 2008, 2009, something like that. Bloody yeah. Um. So the record was already. 15 years old at that point. Yeah, yeah. And Tonight Tonight was the other one I heard, which isn't off this record, but is another good one. The video was really good and just really caught my attention, especially when you compared it to what else was kind of out at that time when I heard it. It was so far from what I was already listening to. That's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because it's, it's, we've, we've had this discussion about like, kind of like the first time I got into Green Day. So it's kind of like, it wasn't new, but it was new to me yeah. and quite different to everything yeah. you know to that sort of yeah i think that's that's almost even more important like i find it now uh seen a couple of interviews with like noel gallagher and things that they say about people listening to oasis, oasis now in this generation mm. probably find it more important than when it first came out possibly because of yeah. how different it is to what is available now that's a good point yeah so what sort of stuff were you listening to when you came to this then uh it probably would have been I was just getting into metal, so a lot of like Slipknot and things like that. Uh, and then prior to that, there was a lot of sort of pop and general rock. And then I had, in terms of like bands like Nirvana, I'd heard of, uh, I'd sort of heard Smells Like Teen Spirit and that was about it at that time. Because at that time, you're sort of finding what you like musically. So I'd sort of just heard the main ones from all the bands. But they were one of the first bands where I sort of delved deeper to find the stuff that wasn't just on the TV or on the radio. Without foreshadowing what we might come on to a little bit later on, did you go and investigate a few of the other bands that were around them at the time? So did you go and investigate the Sound Gardens and the Pearl Jams and the Alice in Chains and all of those? Or was it very much the Pumpkins ticked the box for you? Pumpkins did tick the box. I did look at Sound Garden because out of those sort of bands, I'd say, like you said, production-wise, they probably are the closest in sort of similarity. Pearl Jam was a little bit further away from that and same with a few of the other bands. So I did mainly gear towards um, Smashing Pumpkins, but also Soundgarden. And then um, obviously with your um, insight now as a music producer, was it the, um, because so if, we're, if we're talking about being 15 or 16, was it a record like this? I'm not saying did this record make you want to be a music producer, but could you even at that age hear the, production levels to it somewhat not like i do now like i'm listening i when i hear it now compared to when i first heard it i'm listening to completely different things um it actually encouraged me and wanted me to be a musician uh i was already playing and stuff but like the snare sound is amazing in fact i've recently in the last i think year and a half i've bought a um a snare very similar sounding i had to buy the smaller version because it was cheaper i bought (laughs) the super light for myself my own playing and uh, my own band and things like that so even now I'm chasing the sound they had. Yeah, speaking of that, we um, when we were up to record Sam's um, Christmas single last, what was it, October, November time? Yeah, like that, yeah. Um, we got chatting about um, this record then, didn't we? And you were very excitedly showing off your uh, special custom-made Smashing Pumpkins pedal. <laughs> yeah, I also got that done. Do you do, do, you do plugs on here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What you like, man. Yeah, yeah. so it's uh, a guy called, uh, he goes by Made by Mike. 
Uh, I want to say he's up in Scotland now, but was Bristol based. But yeah, he does um, sort of custom pedals and he just so happened to do the two separate pedals that used to get used for the Smashing Pumpkins records, or at least this one especially. Um, And then it was obviously proving popular. So he ended up making a design that was both pedals in one unit. Um, So I ended up getting that. It's a proper iconic sound as well, though. Yeah, definitely. I seem to remember Scott getting quite excited about that pedal when uh, we've recorded with you with the uh, Angry Barrels. So before we get into the production stuff, because I think we've got that in some categories later, we're just going to go straight in at the top here. Dead easy question. Can I, sorry, sorry, Sam. Can I just jump in? Just in terms of just another one of the records of mine that I would have just had on when you were a kid and after listening to it today, were you thinking like, I've heard this loads uh yes yeah i would say that i if if you um if i was to pick what would have been like the first pumpkin stuff i remember hearing it probably would have been stuff off uh melancholin melancholin however it's pronounced um because there's a punk band they're called... a punk band yeah it? yeah yeah um i call it infinite sadness would have heard like tonight tonight but then equally i remember disarm quite early hearing that but yeah listen to it um today i thought oh yeah i know this and oh yeah yeah yeah, i know this even to the point where i like wrecking if i didn't recognize the whole song recognize some of the riffs and stuff yeah the intro for today for example i was i knew i knew the song but once the intro started i was like ah yeah of course yeah it hits it hits like a ton of bricks that's it yeah so yeah we'll start at the top here and we've got a little list of categories awards whatever you want to call them. So the first one, we'll just go straight in. What's the best song on this record? I'll open, I'll, I'll just throw that out there to uh, either of you. All right, okay. So I've I've got a bit of a short list. So Cherub Rock, Soma, Mayonnaise, and I've also got a bit of a tough spot for Luna, which closes the show. Does it Does it close the show? Is it last but one? Uh, last one. Uh, last, yeah, yeah, Luna. I think it's re- that's really sweet after quite quite a hard record yeah. it's it's just a really sweet little ending and it reminds me a lot it's almost like a sister song to um lily on melancholy in the in the infinite sadness uh, okay so if you don't you know that they they kind of feel like they go hand in hand but probably my like, i used to really love mayonnaise i used to really love soma and but whenever i hear cherub rock come on it's just like yeah i'm in now it's that riff isn't it it's that it's, it's the drums, yeah, and then it's that ri- yeah, yeah. I mean, all the songs are good for different reasons, and there's some which we can go into later for technical reasons. Especially listening now, I'm kind of listening to that and thinking they did that then. Like that's incredible that they they've done that. Uh, as much similar- as I'm looking forward to all your uh, your thoughts, are, that is the, the particular insight that I'm looking forward to getting mm. from you. Okay, I must cool. say. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. sorry, yeah, it's, it's the same sort of thing I get when I'm listening to like. Uh, some of the Stone Roses stuff where you think, you know, some of the effects and things they've done now would be easy, but to have done it then uh, was was quite advanced uh, and creative. But I've actually thinking about best songs as an overall piece is either Geek USA or Mayonnaise. Yeah, I like Geek USA as well, actually. Mm. I thought it was cool. Hummer was was one of mine, my, yes. my favorites, just because it's like, it's it's just like, whoa, what's this? And then it, by the end, you're almost listening to a different song. Yeah. Like I, it was one of those I had to kind of, because I just had it on. I guess, and you know, I was, I was working. I was, Hang on, is this, is this still the same song? Yeah, yeah. 
And also, um, if I remember, because I, I had the uh, guitar book at one point, and pretty much it's all just a few notes around the G chord over and over again. Mm. But it's very much where like the sound in the production takes over. Yeah. Um, so we haven't really come to a sort of. Well, no, we both said mayonnaise. I think mayonnaise. Yeah, may- yeah, yeah, mayonnaise is a very good song. Yeah. Um, and 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 in terms of composition, it's actually quite simple compared to a lot of other mm. stuff that's on there. Yeah. Well, this is it. You can like different songs for different reasons. Like if you went from a commercial standpoint, you're probably looking at something like Cherub Rock or or Today, because uh, they are such standout songs. And you can imagine again thinking to back then, you didn't have where Spotify would have a hard limit on volume levels and normalization and things like that. So, so you can imagine when you can hear that little riff of today coming in um, and then suddenly those guitars and the drums kick in, you'd be sat there thinking it's something on in the background. Suddenly it just hits you wherever you are. Yeah. And it's interesting because like you've, you've, well, we've all really kind of picked, I won't call them the hipster tracks. It's not quite that far, mm-hmm. but like no one went for disarm or today on their, you know, because like disarm would have been a single, right? Did you, did you, Bring that in at the start. Yeah. It was, wasn't yeah. it? And like, that's an amazing song. I love this song. It's slightly different, I suppose, to some of the other stuff on it. Kind of, not not completely, but like, it's 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 a very different sound, but it's still in keeping with the rest of the record. Yeah, it's still them. Yeah, and I I don't know if you guys would agree, but like, I think a massive part of that, and this might be a stating the obvious, but like. Billy Corgan's vocals are, are a huge part of that, aren't they? Yeah, and like the style of the of the, of the well, the content of the lyrics, I suppose. This this is so, Ryan. I've said before that my my strong opinion about pulp is that like everyone thinks, you know, Common People's their most popular song, but I also think it's their best song. If you know mm. what I mean, I think yeah. it's the most, but. I don't know if that's quite the same with with the, uh, this album, to be honest. Like, I'd imagine if I listened to this more, I would probably be drawn to other tracks. It's almost yeah. like Come For Today and Disarm and Stay For Mayonnaise sort of thing. Yeah, like. exactly. Which is probably the sign of a good album, isn't it? I think so. The more you listen to it, the more you're hearing things uh, that you didn't hear the first time around. There's lots of layers and hidden parts. Mm. And yeah, it just grows on you. It's this sort of album where it's uh, more about the feel than instant gratification of a song where it just comes in, comes out, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, you know. Uh, they're just doing what they want. We spoke um, last year about um, Do Little by the Pixies and I said like very much when I first heard it, you're going in for Debaser and Here Comes Your Man, Wave of Mutilation, Monkey Gone to Heaven. But after listening to it for 30 years, you're after hay and sliver mm. and yeah all, you know it's, it's the second half of the album that still kind of not surprises you but that's what ticks all the boxes for you yeah uh i just um just throw out again so a friend of mine clint who is going to hopefully come on and do an episode about pearl jam with us eventually um when we sort of get back going again after the summer break um he had l- he's half decent he's going to replace you and it's going to be a pearl jam only podcast to be honest he'd probably be really up for that <laughs> um i think you'll get on so him and his wife had Luna as their um, mm-hmm. wedding song, which... Oh, cool. Yeah, which is... Because I thought it was. I was listening to it, and I, when, when that come on, I thought, oh, yeah, he loves this record. So I, I, I texted him, and he, yeah, he, he mentioned that. Uh, he got some other bits that he said about it, which but they're a bit more relevant as we go on. So we've, we've sort of got, you know, a best song there, or thoughts on our best songs. 
what would you say is is the other end of the table? It's listed well, you know, we say worse song, but like worse doesn't necessarily mean bad or like or you know, what what might you skip if you're in a hurry sort of thing. Yeah. So there's there's a bit of a theme with me where we've done a few records that I've listened to, that, that, you know, a few records of mine recently where it's like the songs I've heard so much for nearly 30 years they're the ones i'm just going to skip so for me i've heard disarm enough times mm. i could do if, if i i could do it in my head now if i wanted to so if i'm in a rush i'm going to skip that and then does anyone really need like eight minutes of silver fuck <laughs> right yeah i agree i agree with you there that was the one track i got to and i was a bit like oh okay eight minutes all right strap in is this where you're going to tell us it's your favourite song, right? No, it's, it's not. But I would agree with you there that possibly because it does go on. If you are li- just there to listen to a couple of tracks, that's probably not one of them just for that reason. I, I almost would say the same depending on what sort of mood you're in and what you're wanting to hear. Luna, because it is a bit more mellow yeah. compared to the rest of the album. So like, if you, if you pick that album to listen to, chances are it's not because of the one track that's like that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I think that, you know, I'm sure you'd agree. Luna's a beautiful song, yeah. so, you know, but yeah, I, I see what you mean. Like it, it's quite removed from a lot of the other stuff, isn't it? So you might think, yeah, if you said, I'm going to, if you said, I'm going to listen to this album, it wouldn't have been for that one song. It's going to be for the rest of the feel of the general album. So chances are you're going to pick some of the other tracks. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, that's fair. So we, we've got those couple there. Now, again, we seem to be going good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. I'm really interested to hear what you've got to say about this, Ryan, because I think I might know what you're going to say. But the next we're going to talk about, um, Rob, I think you actually call this the Sam Jones Award for when you, you and Leon did the Radiohead episode. So the Sam Jones... Oh, you actually listened to that then, did you? Yeah, I do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's quite good, actually. I almost put it on. didn't, but I almost... <laughs> almost. <laughs> and there, I, I was going to put it on, and I thought, actually, I've got 24 hours to listen to Siamese Dream, so I better crack on with that. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, this is the, the unofficial Sam Jones Award for I Wish I'd Written That. In case Ryan hasn't listened to the show, I'm sure he listens to it every time he comes yeah, out. Absolutely. So, yeah. Exactly. Um, so this is like, it, it could be a lyric or it could be a guitar line or it could be a paradiddle as you're a drummer. That is a drumming phrase, it isn't is. it? Yeah. <laughs> so for me, it's a, like there's a couple of examples of on this record where they perfectly come out of they come out of a guitar solo absolutely perfectly and the ones on soma the guitar solo's going away and it's going and going and going and then corgan comes in with a so let the sadness come again vocal and it's just like why that's that's just perfect that couldn't sound any better and again on cherub, cherub rock they do exactly the same um, where he comes in with the tell me all of your secrets bit and it's mm. properly building the drums yeah. are going and then he just comes in with it and it's just it, it's just spot on for me and i don't know what it is it's the end um, hummer of course it's hummer yeah. yeah um the the outro to that song it's just the way it kind of it just from the the, the big kind of hard sort of intro the way that it drifts and you kind of Saying you're waiting it for it to end isn't quite right because you're not because it's got you quite hooked. But it's that way that end riff just kind of goes and goes and goes. I think it's yeah, really clever, mean. and it's just like da da, and you think, oh, there you go, he's gonna. That's it. That's the. Oh no, no, he's going again, and then he's going again, and it, it's just really kind of like it, it's almost that sort of 
we've dragged you through this song a little bit. You know, we've taken yeah, yeah. you on a bit of a, a bit of a wild ride through it. And like, we're not going to let you go until we're absolutely ready. And that riff just seems to kind of keep you almost like tumbling down the rabbit hole, if you will. Yeah. And the tone of the guitar is just amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Ryan, over to you. For me, there's two parts that always stick with me. And I think, why didn't I write that? Because it's so simple. Uh, and yet they've had to come up with it. So either not necessarily the intro riff of today, but the way today kicks in, that just is so simple. And yet it, it hammers massively. Uh, and then the other thought is uh, disarm. I love the way that um, that sort of riff goes. Yeah. And I love the, um, I joked about it earlier, but on a serious note, like the use of the bells in that song. Yeah. That like, it's real. It's like, it's almost biblical, if you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah. It, it, and again, it's a really, really simple song. It's just four chords mm. all the way through. Yeah. But I can't, like, I've been trying to play it for years. I can't play it like they play it. Mm. Like, I'm not a very good guitarist, but that's not, the, you know. But it it should be, it seems like it should be simple. But yeah. again, and whether it's in the production, there's so much going on. Yeah. But yet it's still saying stripped back compared to the rest of the record. Yeah, I think mm. it's clever use of what they've got and the way it's put together. So like it sounds full, but then like you said, not in the same way as the others do. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of the the bells you were talking about in Disarm, uh, Sam, there was a a band a few years ago called Hate System. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, And they did a song called Weight of the World and we went for that kind of thing. So we got the bells on there and all that. Uh, And it has got, it's a different sound, but it's a similar feel. Yeah, yeah. It's, It's just kind of like, it's almost, it's like, it's so far away from what you would perhaps expect that it almost goes full circle and it, and it works brilliantly. Yeah. Do you, if you see what I mean, it's like, like I can't imagine like, again, uh, you know, I might be doing them a disservice here, but I wonder if those, those guys had heard the song and thought, Oh, I wonder, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like to have that sort of, you know, you take a very, well, it's pretty dark in it, disarm and think mm. this song needs some church bells. <laughs> it's almost yeah. like, you know, it's like, Oh, Oh Christ. Yeah. That is a brilliant, like the more, I feel I've done a bit of a disservice, maybe, by not mentioning it in our first category tonight. But what I was going to say, actually, Ryan, you've, you've, you've actually answered more directly than I was expecting. I thought um, you might just go for, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to worry, sorry, wouldn't wanted to have written any of it, but I would have loved to have produced it. I would love to as well. I mean, I, I have done uh, nothing that's obviously even probably going to be released, but for Daisy and stuff, and we were sort of experimenting with sounds, um, we did a few tracks with that pedal that I've got and a few nice. things and went that kind of route with it to try and get the same sound. Ah, right. Um, yeah, yeah. So it is definitely something I chase and sort of push into places like with bands where it possibly shouldn't be there. Like there's a few pop rock artists I work with and then randomly at the end, I'm like, do you know what? This chorus just needs some heavy distorted mm. guitars on it for no reason. other than Get the, the pumpkins pedal. pedal. <laughs> yeah. And it just works, you know. Did you use it on your EP, Sam? I think we did. I, I pretty sure. No, I, I think we use it for thought, some leads. I think I was going to say, I think we used it on lead guitars, didn't we? Because Scott, for someone who isn't, I don't think he particularly likes them as a band. I think he's quite appreciative of, of the tone and the sound. And mm. I, so I remember him being really excited about it. Um, so yeah, I'm sure we used it. I'm not sure if it was this latest one or the one we did before, but yeah, I'm sure it's been, yeah, been out. I, I will just say that, while while Ryan says, you know, he would love to have produced it, 
looking at a couple of the stories I'm going to get out in a minute. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if you actually would have wanted to have been in that studio. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And Cor- I think we'll get into that in a minute, won't we? Yeah, but- yeah. The, the, I'll, I'll put a little disclaimer on that then. I'd like to produce a band in that way <laughs> with that sound, but not them. <laughs> yeah. Or him. Yeah. yeah. Or him as we're going to get on to, into. So, Rob, I'm going to slightly mix up the categories here as well because yeah. we're, we're talking production. The things that really stand out for me production-wise, which again, Ryan, I'm going to bend your ear about because obviously you are our man behind the curtain for that. Um, man in the chair. Man in the chair. Yeah, the 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 one thing, or two things really, that really stand out to me, and it's, it is, uh, we've mentioned it, is like that guitar tone. Yes. That guitar tone for me is iconic. Is out, oh, Christ's sake, I can't speak. Is as iconic as like, We've spoken about like Dimebag Daryl in the past, Tom Morello. Um, like you hear that, and well, it's, just, it's the pumpkins, but also, and it's a well, I think it's a bit of a producer joke, but like the snare, the snare sounds so fucking good. Yeah, and from what I understand, the classic is record sounds good, but the snare sounds like shit. That's kind of a producer joke, right? Is that a yeah, thing? yeah, that is always the joke, but like you hear, that and it's just like. It's I don't know because it's kind of like again and, and I don't know why I don't know why I'm talking about this but to me it sounds almost like hollow but at the same time it's massive I don't know I can't it's one of those things but like those are the two things that really strike me about it but so so the the question is should it be held in higher regard outside of its genre so Rob's given a few examples of like Rubber Soul Doolittle Thriller as the other examples I can think of at the minute. So that's literally reading your message there. So Ryan, do you think that it should be held in high regard as a piece of production work in its own right, but also should it that be appreciated outside of the alt rock grunge scene, if you will? Yeah, hundred percent. Uh especially like you mentioned the snare. I've gone and bought a snare to try and get that sound. That is still one of the most bought snare drums, the actual one, the Superphonic. That's what it right. is. Uh, I'm not sure whether they used, I would imagine they used similar to what I got, the uh, eight inch deep version. So slightly deeper. Okay. Uh, and it's a metal uh, drum as opposed to wood. So you get much more ring from it, which is why if you listen, especially on some of the fills, you'll hear the ring of the snare um, quite a lot. Right. So essentially what you're hearing is the attack from the top of the snare drum along with the ring of the drum. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying. See, this is why we wanted him, Rob. This yeah. is it. <laughs> um, I, I found this from the NME. This is all the way back from 2014 of the 26 albums with the most incredible production. Um, I won't go through them all. I will say that Time mm. Dream isn't on there. Um, and obviously all these records have different merits, don't they? So number one is 2001, right, yeah. Dr. Dre. Yeah. Number two is Nirvana's In Utero, which I think is probably about as far mm. from this in terms of production because it's re- it feel it has that real sort of in the studio but live mm-hmm. vibe about it. Whereas I think even um, like Butch Vig, who produced Siamese Dream, he said like they reckon there was a hundred guitar yeah. parts in one song. Whereas you know, so In Utero makes of this, this doesn't. Um, PJ Harvey. Uh, Deftones White Pony and we go all the way down to number 8 before we get to right. Sergeant Peppers and then Thriller 
and then OK Computer at eleven. Um, but yeah, so this should be up there if I if yeah I I think I don't know I don't know the subject really, but it just sounds like an important yeah. record production wise. And it I does depending it on who you speak to. Like drummers, like I say, are interested in that sound. Like you hear the snare, and as soon as you hear it, you're like, "Yep, that's the sound." And some of those ones that you mentioned. Uh, they were sort of on the cusp of new technology. So a lot of them have sort of got the recognition partially, not not that it disregards what they've done themselves, but as in um, they were the pioneers of these new technologies at the same time. And also in, in like the early 90s, around a lot of these records that I love, is when you start to get like the superstar producer mm. of that scene so you've got butch vig and steve albini rick rubin i know he's a bit different but he starts to yeah. get that name doesn't he and uh records and bad and afraid mm-hmm. for brendan o'brien he's been mentioned plenty of times just for that and they all seem to bring their own sound and it's almost as recognizable Definitely. as the band um you find the same is if you haven't heard of him he's done so much stuff a guy called eric valentine what's what would we know him from right more recently ish did all american rejects oh right yeah uh that was the main video right. i watched uh he did i'm gonna go blank on the name now <laughs> uh, the other band dave grohl's in read drums um queens of the stone age yes queens of the stone age yeah, oh, no, why are we talking about queens of the stone age again <laughs> yeah and Sam like, hates no. him, or Sam hates uh, him. It's it's a big list that he's worked with. But again, as he starts, I've never put these songs together, but when he's going through them, you hear elements in the way he does things, and on a technical level, the type of things he looks to boost and cut, and like the way he crafts it, and you kind of think, yeah, these do add up together. Yeah, yeah. So, like you say, they do have a sound, and I find the same here. What, like you said, we'll talk later about more about the studio, but I try to. I almost want to underproduce things in a modern sense, not necessarily in the way we make the song, but in terms of, I don't want it to sound like it's the most perfect, pristine thing to ever come out of a studio because it's not real. Bodes well when you're working with me. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I, I, I find that one of the most important things. Like if I've got a band coming in uh, and it kind of ties in when you said about with um, Smashing Pumpkins about them having that many layers of guitars and things like that, they still, you can hear it, slow down speed up in places and you can feel the energy so they've still started with a live track and then overdubbed and i think that's one of the big differences in how something comes out so what i'm really pushing when i've got like a full band in and um i've done it with obviously alvin the angry barrels Mm. where i'll get you guys to track live whether that's with a click or without yeah and because that can be dependent on the song what it wants to feel like or uh how well the songs are known at the time this you know people come in don't know their own songs that does happen or don't know them as well as they should know them. Um, but Guilty. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think that kind of thing is so super important. I think to get that side of things, and then you can build up how you want, and you've still got that feel that you needed. Mm. Uh, whereas some some bands, and I have done it with certain music because it suits. Where you go in, everything's quantized, everything's tuned, everything's as perfect as perfect can be. It hasn't got the feel that which is what I think a lot of people go back to older music for because that's what it had because that was how you had to do it. Speaking of how you had to do it, so we've I've, I've just said about Butch Vig saying there's like 100 guitar parts in one song and there's a quote here somewhere. Hang on, let me find the quote. I'll just throw it out there while you're looking for that. That's too many. 
yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but also, Corgan said uh, on Soma there was o- uh, at least forty overdubbed guitar parts. Now yeah. that's from watching you guys work briefly when I was up there um, back in November. That seems relatively easy. As I say, I've seen your take count, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> But that, but that seems rather doing an overdub digitally. Yeah, seems a lot different to how they would have done, probably done it on tape. Yes, massively, uh, especially the further back you go. Like if you go back to really early tape, let's say let's say we're looking at uh, four track, right? So you've got four tracks that you can fill with audio. When you reach your four tracks, you had to commit and basically put these tracks. Or when you'd reach three, you'd have to bounce all the well record all these down to one solitary track to free up your other three tracks Mm -hmm. so as you're building when you get like like you said these 40 tracks or whatever you're having to commit to these decisions and once it's in there it's in there and you're mixing as you go as opposed to this separate process we have now Uh, how far away from that word of this record have been out of interest uh i imagine they'd have probably been on 16 24 tracks something like that Maybe right. even, uh, I can't remember the date, but uh, at one point they came out with a system where basically you can combine tape machines together to get more tracks and they sync with right. each other. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, to be honest, it was all budget dependent. But essentially, there would have been some form of bussing down probably because tape costs money. The more you keep recording on tape, the more it wears, you know. And then, like I say, the mix process, as it got further on, let's say you got 24 tracks, at least you can throw those up on a console and mix after. But in the early, early days, if you were on low budget, you were mixing as you went because uh, once this banks down to these tracks, they're stuck together. So just a bit of detail around the recording process of this record. So it's recorded between December 92 and March 93 at Triclop Studios in Georgia so they could avoid local friends and distractions. Yep. <laughs> and to cut the drummer off from his known drug connections because he was... Right. He was fiend in at the time butch vig quote oh butch vig states billy corgan and i raised the bar really high we wanted to make a very ambitious sounding record it was all done on analog tape so it's time consuming we were working 12 hours a day six times a week for about three months and the last two months we worked seven days a week for about 15 hours a day because we were so far behind schedule yeah after he suffered a nervous breakdown corgan began <laughs> visiting a therapist Consequently, his lyrics became more explicit about his troubled past. Da, da, da. Um, also, while recording, Darcy, the bassist, and James, is it James Ear, the mm. guitar player, they were in a relationship, then they weren't. At times, Darcy, oh, here we go again, quote, a quote from Butch Vig, Darcy would often lock herself in the bathroom, James wouldn't say anything, or Billy would lock himself in the control room. Corgan often overdubbed the other's guitar parts with his own playing. Darcy Retsky stated that Corgan only performed most of the guitar and bass parts because he could lay them down easier in recording with far fewer takes than she would. Yeah, you hear of that um, uh, even now. Yeah, Corgan admits there was some truth to the accusations of tyrannical behaviour. Chamberlain performed all the drum parts on the album, but he would disappear for days on drug benders that caused everyone to fear for his life. So, I'm just going to throw this out there. Uh, two things. Three months, as you say. I know it's like pretty much all day, every day for three months. I was expecting this to be like, uh, this took seven years to make. What, like <laughs> the Chinese I mean? democracy. Yeah, it, yeah. Here's the best bit. Version began to grow impatient since the recording went over budget and behind schedule. Corgan and Vig were too emotionally exhausted to mix the record, so they brought in Alan Mulder. He booked two weeks in a studio to mix the album. 
it ended up taking him 36 days. Brilliant. <laughs> the album was finished after four months and 250 grand over budget. It doesn't say what the budget was. Yeah. Like, part of me really admires it for that because it's proper rock and roll, isn't it? Really? Yeah. You know what I mean? Where's your drummer? I don't know where the drummer <laughs> is. I, th- I think we'll, we'll come on to it again, but I've got a, f- a few bits about Corgan himself to, to relay from, so, from Clint. Uh, Billy, it's, it sounds amazing. <laughs> Billy wanted to make a record that people would put on and say, what the fuck was that? We wanted to have things going on in the left ear and the right ear all the time. One of Corgan's main goals was to create a sense of sonic depth, but as Corgan said, without necessarily using delays or reverbs, just to use tonalities instead. What I was wondering, though, is because it's a record that's produced as the Smashing Pumpkins, but it's yeah. very much a Billy Corgan project, at what point does that start to, well, clearly, have an impact on the band? Where they And at what point do they just become like session musicians mm. also if it's all billy corgan why was his solo stuff later so shit <laughs> yeah yeah that's really fair um so and and also like just on the terms terms of like how far they they were willing like the other band members were willing to let corgan grab hold of everything when dave grohl re-recorded the drums for color and the shape the drummer quit Mm. So what was it that made them stick around? A couple of thoughts. Sorry, that's me just ranting for 10 minutes. No, 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 no. I think it's fair, actually, Rob, because I think I don't know the band that well, but what I, from what I understand, like, to, this this was the, the point. Again, I, I try far as I going to answer your, your point, but I'm not. I'm going to just chuck another one in the mix. What's interesting is that I don't think, from the sounds of this record and sort of the content, Lyric because he Corgan would have written all of the lyrics, wouldn't he? He would be the songwriter. Like so, James has got two writing credits, and I think it's for the guitar solos. Right. Okay. One side of the coin is, like you said, Corgan's solo work isn't very good. It's not. It's not very good. So, how good could have this record have been if he had let the band influence him more? But equally. If he had hadn't had the bloody mind, the fuck's sake, the bloody mindedness and the megalomania, almost to be like, this is mine, I'm doing it. You know, like how how watered down could it have it become? So it's kind of like, I don't think this record gets made any other way, if that makes sense. Because I think if Corgan lets the others in more, it gets watered down, but equally. He has, you know, if he doesn't shut himself off, it just, it doesn't quite work the same. I don't know. Ryan, have you got any thoughts? Because I'm rambling. (laughs) So I think it depends on the individual band. It makes sense if someone's got a really clear vision to follow that. Mm. Like I've had had some bands come in where one person's wrote it. The other guys might be playing it. Sometimes not. Uh, I've had it where the guitarist has done the bass part or whatever, or the guitarist has done all the guitar parts. Yeah, things like that is totally dependent on what's there. And when you said about uh, band members, you know, why did they stick with it and why did they let him get away with everything that he would have got away with? Um, I think they probably believed in the vision is probably what I would like to say. I just wonder if you haven't got, like, if you're you're meant to be in this band, like, if you're not contributing to the writing process, like, how can you have any equity in in the band going forward unless you are just on a wage 
yeah, I see what you're saying. I wonder how much of it is the dynamic of sort of like they might not be writing or they might not be sort of, but like the fact that I, I sorry, I, I don't know the, the other uh, the other band members' names, which kind of suggests what you think and know about the Pumpkins, really. But like, I wonder if part of contributing is knowing when to stay out of his way. Because you yeah. have got, like, you know, I think he is love him or hate him, and I've got something to come on to. He is almost like a generational talent, isn't he? Yeah. There's no, no, I don't know anyone who really sings like him vocally. And, like, obviously, this is a quite a unique sounding record, which the producer's got to take some credit for, I, I would say. I'll vote. But, like, um, I wonder if part of that is, like, you're just kind of, you know, you know when he needs to sort of be pushed and when is it, is it right? Best analogy I can come up with is Muhammad Ali, right? Angelo Dundee, greatest trainer of all time. Muhammad Ali, greatest fighter of all time. Angelo Dundee said he couldn't train him, but he knew when not to train him. Yeah. So like, and, and I wonder if it's a bit of that with the band. It's almost like, I'm just going to let him go here. And do you know what I mean? I wonder if there would have been a point where they would have said, Billy, mate, come on, this is too much. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important when there is a vision to follow it, like I said. So, like, obviously, with you, Sam, we had it with one of your tracks where I wanted to keep it exactly how you had planned it and done it. That, for me, is super important when you know and you believe in that vision rather than, yeah, you know, and it depends on the reasons for. Like, although he was in charge, I, I'm sure in the song, either the songwriting or whether they wrote something in the studio – it would have been if someone suggested something and it was good, he's not going to say no because he's a control freak. If it sounds better, he should mm. go with it. And I'm the same in here with everyone I work with. If it sounds better, it's better. Yeah. I was trying to think of some other examples of records that are purely a solo effort or like this, where it's like one creative force, but then it's been put out as a band. And the only one that really jumped to mind was Pet Sounds, which was 100% Brian Wilson but was released as the Beach Boys, whereas Smile was Brian Wilson's Smile. Yeah, I, that was, I had the same thought about Pet Sounds, that it's a Beach Boys album, but it, it's, it's Brian Wilson yeah. really, isn't it? I can really think yeah. of many other... Well, on, on the flip side, you can think when Foo Fighters started, that it was just Dave Grohl, wasn't it? Hmm. Uh, you know, but it was still Foo Fighters. It was, it was perceived as a band. I think that's a little bit different because that was sort of demos that... Dave Grohl had knocking around. That first record was very much a solo record. And yeah. then I don't know. I think he put that first record out thinking, well, at least I've got it out there. And then when it started to take off. Then put a band together. And then put a band together. And it was slowly working out people's boundaries and roles. So when yeah. he did re-record all of the drum tracks, I can't remember the other boy's name, he left. And then Taylor Hawkins came in. But Taylor Hawkins came in as a peer. Rather yeah. than as someone who's been hired to play drums on tour, yeah. Do you see that that, that definition of role almost? Yeah, yeah. I think you do fall into place in different bands. Like I've been in a few different bands, and the roles been different in each. Even though I'm drumming in all of them, some of them I'm songwriting, some of them I'm not. Some of them I'm literally just playing. It's like with like with Pearl Jam, that like every member of that band, even Matt Cameron, the drummer, have got songs on different albums. But Eddie Vedder's done 90% of all the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And mm. there's some songs there, everything except the guitar solo is Eddie Vedder. 
but everyone brings stuff to the table. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, this, you know, it's this, this is, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say that's that's the thing. I mean, I am a horrendous lyric writer, mm-hmm. but I'm a great lyric adjuster. Yeah. <laughs> so so I know I know my place. If I'm in a band, I will not write the lyrics. But if someone shows me the lyrics or they're coming in here to record them, I'm happy to flick through, change syllables, change the odd word here mm. and there, and it works out for the better. But like, like I say, in that situation, you find where you fit. Yeah. So talking of where things fit, like that, Rob, you like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, Ryan, you'll have something to say here as well. But Rob, I think this is really, I'm mainly aiming this question at you because you being the uh, the greasy grunger among us. The old man. Uh, um, the old man. Where does it fit for you in two, two, two areas in terms of the scene of the time and also amongst its record peers, if you will? So is it as, is it as good or as quintessential or whatever as Nevermind, Vitology, Super Unknown? And is it fair to put the Pumpkins in with those bands? Right. So I think it's bit overlooked and a bit undervalued mm-hmm. even though it gets loads of plaudits and it's regularly in like top 10 90s albums of all time i think it's one of those that people go oh yeah and siamese dream yeah 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 and it is quite a lot at times especially when you compare it to like nirvana who are a bit more stripped back um and then like Pearl Jam on certainly on Versus, which was ninety-two, and Vitology, which is like ninety-three, they're sort of striving for a more punky sort of yeah, certainly a more they're kind of going for that sort of punky Fugazi sound or feeling. So that's a bit different again. And like I said earlier, maybe stuff that um Soundgarden would go on to do in mm. terms of ambition. So stuff like Super Unknown is a very ambitious record and Down on the Upside is a bit of a departure for them. But I wonder if they don't get lumped in with those bands because they weren't from Seattle. Uh, Interesting. So they get called a grunge band, but if you think of the the big grunge bands, it's Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden. Nirvana were from the area, but they're a bit out of it. But those other three bands, they were all mates. They were all playing each other's bands mm. all the time. They shared office space, you know. So if it wasn't for the geography, would you put Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and Pearl Jam in the same scene? No, probably no. not. Because, like, you've got the the punks. Basically, yeah, never mind's a punk record. I, I think it's, I don't care what anyone says. Never mind is a punk record. Can I just say, right. I've never seen you look happier than when you're teaching your grunge class. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's kids in school, isn't it? No, no, but but like Nirv- N- Nirvana's a punk record. Vitology is kind of like Pearl Jam's attempt at art rock, if you like. But mm. Soundgarden, they're a Sabbath-inspired metal band. Mm. They're like, prop, like sludgy metal band. Yeah. yeah. And Alice in Chains, they could tour with Pantera if they wanted to. Mm. Yeah, and you but you wouldn't. The only thing that links them is Seattle. There's the Pacific Northwest, and then yeah. I think Smashing Pumpkins is Chicago, aren't they? Or Billy Corgan's from Chicago. Yes, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I wonder if he's just playing a different game to the rest of them. 
the area does make a difference. I mean, you can think about like the whole Madchester thing, and like, but I'm sure there are people elsewhere in the country that are making that kind of music, mm. you know, uh, at least instrumentally. But yet, they wouldn't get lumped in with them for that kind of sa- the sound is Manchester mm-hmm. sort of owned, if you know what I mean, in terms of the way people think about it. And like, like you said about the location thing, if Soundgarden are in there, uh, lumped in with those bands, then definitely Smashing Pumpkins should be because I'd say those two are the closest mm-hmm. sounding from what I've heard of the different bands. So I, I had some feedback um, from my friend Clint and he, he's, his take on it is it's quite similar to yours, really. He says that, um, and, and this bear in mind, this is a text message, so take some, some tone with it and whatnot. So he basically, he says, people always go on about Cobain and others from 91, but for me, the Pumpkins were always slightly removed from that scene. He then goes on to say, there's so much going on with the music and what they were doing compared to the other bands. And I think that's a pretty good analysis because I, I get it. I get that you've got the timeline is, is kind of similar and it's kind of alt rock almost. So you can kind of see how they go together. But at the same time, I, I would agree that they don't. Yeah. Now, Rob, I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but I think you're going to like what I'm linking it to because, you know, I do, do listen. I do take this stuff in. For me, the record that I've heard recently that most sounds like this or what reminded me most of this is Doolittle. All right. So, like, listening to this Pumpkins record, I thought, wow, this, if I was to put this record in with something, it wouldn't be the great, it, it would be more Pixies kind of thing. And I think that's a bit of lyrical content. It's a little bit abstract. It's a little bit, and it's got, like, the the dynamic shifts in like volume and like like pace and stuff that's similar to Doolittle. So for me, there's no I don't think the um the impact of the Pixies on the whole of the alternative rock scene going from like the late eighties into the early nineties, you can't ignore that. It's absolutely mm. everywhere. But if we're saying this is one of like the best produced albums of the time, Doolittle was up there. Yeah, as well, and it maybe it's that production value that's you know because mm. like like to me like I think you're talking a bit of bollocks to be honest, but oh <laughs> no, fine, that's absolutely fine. No, 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 uh... no, 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 that's not fair. No, I think you're right in terms of like the the, the quiet loud, quiet loud stuff, and the way yeah. and the way stuff builds and the way stuff flows. But there's so many different ways to look at it. Like you can think about it as the dynamics of the song, or you can think about it as the instruments that are used, mm. or you could think about it with the lyric content, like you said. But like the other one that when you said about the area that makes you think is like, think of some of the bands you've played with, with Angry Barrels, Sam. Like they're like punkish. Yes. Things like that. Yeah. If, if you were from different areas, I wouldn't necessarily put you together. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't know what their record sounds like. But I haven't heard it, but like Chokes are a good example of that. Who I know you've recorded recently. Yeah, yeah. Like we've played with them. But I wouldn't really say we're similar. No, you're different. You're different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. To be honest with you, mate, I'm just pissed off with Rob just saying I'm talking bollocks about the Pixies. To be honest with you, I thought he's going to like that. Um, but no, no. I think I think that's a really good point that you, we've, we kind of stumbled. Is it the, is geography as yeah. important as as the band or or the music they're making? So Seattle in the late 80s early 90s is very much like herefordshire always Hmm. in that 
you would get the big bands going to play the Enormo Dome or whatever they call it, you know, they'd go up there. Yeah, yeah. So you'd get the Van Halens would go up because they know they could sell out the big arenas and that, but you wouldn't get the smaller bands. They, well, they wouldn't risk going to play a club in Seattle in case no one turns up. Yeah. So basically no one was playing. So all these bands that sounded different were, were, were all on each other's lineups, the same as you play yeah. with last tree squad or you or who yeah. you know so yeah what what ryan said <laughs> <laughs> so if you'll you... cut my bit out <laughs> <laughs> i think there's enough of me yabbering on, on this already mate um so we, we've kind of covered most of it but there are a couple couple more that we want to sort of chat about and i think we can push some of these together a little bit and if you didn't like my pixies comparison you're gonna love this next one rob um so <laughs> We, we, we're talking about is it peak pumpkin slash billy corgan where do the pumpkins stand in the pantheon of time are they an all-time great band now I, what i just want to say and then i'm going to be quiet and i'll let you two kind of wrap up on this but two two things do you think that billy corgan strikes me as a bit of an outsider a bit of a me against the world kind of guy do you think that Two, two things at play here. Number one, he's pissed off because he knows how much of his heart, his life, his soul, his entire being went into this record and the other records, and it gets overlooked. Perhaps not, perhaps not critically, but commercially maybe, and it's not like the most well-known record of, the, of that period. And also, do you think that in a similar way to people don't like U2 because they don't like Bono, do people not like the Smashing Pumpkins or think the Smashing Pumpkins are about their own ass because of Billy Corgan? I think Billy Corgan is iconic. I think, mm. like, for me, he is, like, he's up there with Vedder and Kurt Cobain and Chris Cornell and Bono. And, as one of the icons <laughs> of that yeah. scene of which I like to say I'm a, yeah. I am was a part of. Yeah. Um, so, and... I suppose, like, you got always got to remember that this was the last um, Pumpkins records where he had hair. I know. I watched a video about the... See, I have prepared, and he had hair, and I was like, I can't, I can't deal with this. In terms... <laughs> no, it's weird. Um, in terms of, um, like, charts or album sales, it sold six million worldwide. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, if, if it had been a commercial flop, would they let him make Melancholy and Infinite Sadness, like a sprawling double album? No, I think I think he found an area like a niche that worked. It wasn't mainstream, but there was still a massive demand for it. And you find that with a lot of bands. There's bands I know that are touring at the moment, and they're not they're not on the news, they're not in the charts, and yet they're selling out their gigs and selling loads of merch. And I and I also feel that the way it all went because it's like you had we all, we often talk about like three classic albums of a band. So for this this band, obviously you've got. Gish, Siamese Dream, and then Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, and after that, it feels like it drops off really quickly. Yes, because you got like you got like a door in Machina. Yeah, it just all gets a bit messy and it goes a little bit proto goth. <laughs> um, but I think his his there his influence goes off in a very different direction to their peers if you like so Hmm. whereas pearl jam will be inspiring the likes of creed and nickelback and all that and nirvana inspiring silver chair maybe placebo are having a little nod and a wink 
like like yeah. in in ninety six when that first placebo comes out, is there a bit mm. of a nod and a wink towards like certainly towards maybe Gish in this record? I hadn't thought of that, but I would say yeah, definitely. And to then be that whole not goth scene, but that goth light, if you like. Do you not? <laughs> you know what I'm getting at? Like it's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Do you think they're one of the all time great bands? For me, they're one of the top five or six out of that era and it's for those first three albums yeah yeah um i did write some it's probably one of the big five or six from the 90s scene and then like i said after melancholy it kind of dropped away pretty quick and then the other question is is it peak pumpkins or peak corgan now i think he would argue that melancholy is his magnum opus it's his you know, and then a- yeah. and after that, he does start to experiment a bit more, and you can see the direct lineage from Gish to Melancholy, and then there is a bit of a shift, and like mm. lots of more like synthesizers and stuff come in in the in the later records, yeah. um, and it kind of feels like this is his end game before he decides to go off and have a bit of a play with after having all that success and financially the record company would go well smashing pumpkins in it they could it, it might take him three years but it'll do it sell but is this the is this his best record is this their best record i think it probably is i, I think it is as a, as an album because i know it's over an hour long but if you like cut silver fucking half and you yeah. know trimmed a little bit here and there it's actually so it's just silver yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just fuck <laughs> Yeah. Um it's still for Billy Corgan it still feels pretty concise. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like the album makes sense. Like I don't I've although like you said if you're just general listening perhaps Silver Fox quite yeah. long, but if you're just listening to it as an album, nothing feels out of place, no. nothing seems particularly forced. It's just kind of is what it and is. And for me, it's a top 10 album. It's mm. one of my top 10 albums. Yeah. Like if I made yeah. a list, I I I I might not have it Oh, you'd probably move around all over the shop, but I'd have it in in my top ten. Yeah, definitely. Same. Do you hold them in that sort of regard, Ryan? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I know I always go back to, especially now, uh, as opposed to when I first listened to them about mm. like the production value and things like that, like we said about the intro for Hammer. Yeah, and like if you listen to some of the things, like uh, I think it is on Silver Fuck. Actually, there's the quiet section where he says "Bang Bang, you're dead." Mm-hmm. Oh yes, yeah, 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 and you you hear there's like it sounds like a reverse delay, right? Yeah, yeah, around that, and there's a couple of little things like that, and there's production tricks that people like to use now, but they were doing it then. Mm. Is it on the um, intro to Choir? Isn't that something played backwards before he then goes into? Yeah, yes, I believe it is. That's, yeah, it certainly sounds yeah. like that way, but it's just little tricks like that, isn't it? They just yeah. add to the. It's almost just like little bits of um, join. It's like yeah, yeah, bit great in between the tiles rather than mm. it. Yeah. That's it. But you think about how hard it would have been to do then. Like, um, I know we talked earlier about tape and like, think about when we're doing an edit, like we want to move something. Now it's two clicks and you move it. Mm. Whereas then you'd have to physically get the tape, cut it, and you had to cut it at the angle of the crossfade you want between the parts. <laughs> like, I don't know if you guys are aware uh, of that. Like uh, on, on here you hit F and you've got a crossfade. On there you had, to, you had a special <laughs> cutting block with the different angles on it so that you could create the crossfades with the tape and then stick it together with a bit of uh, sticky tape on the back. <laughs> what a time to be alive though, mate. <laughs> yeah. You can see why it costs so much 
money like you said you said earlier about they went over was it 250,000 over, over budget? budget i couldn't find out what the actual yeah. budget was but if they and that's no. like the 90s so like yeah that know. was the big budget that was the big budget era to be fair the 90s cuz mm. like now it's like when you guys come in here it's it's me or maybe me and assist and an assistant something like that yeah whereas these would have been you'd have had a producer an engineer a tape op mm. an assistant you know a runner do you know what I mean it was a much bigger system going on Hmm. did you enjoy listening to it sam because i i really thought you were going to hate listening to this because it's probably one of my records like i i'm not gonna say it's it's jumped to the top of my list and i can't promise that i wasn't you know making a cup of tea while it was on and stuff it didn't like but for the for as much listening for this chat i did enjoy it if you know what i mean because i knew you two were very into it and i knew that Robert, I knew it's a big record for you and Ryan from from some of like the production side of it. I knew it was important for you, yeah. so you know, listening to it, almost trying to well, listen to it through sort of like your lens, if you will. Yeah, they both trying to you. hear it for why we like. Yeah, it. yeah, and like some of it's really really good. Like like Hummer, I like is amazing, and I was kind of like, "Whoa, this is this is really cool." And like you know, I I enjoyed herd, herding, herding, fuck man, hearing like disarm again and like um today because they're really good songs today especially i'm going to learn to play that riff on the guitar this weekend that's my plan that's quite easy Um, i'll I'll lend Mm. you the pedal (laughs) yeah cheers mate i I might probably won't make it but his voice on that record is fucking amazing Mm. like i think he gets a lot of not a lot of stick but i think it's quite easy to parody because it is quite a distinctive Yo, voice, yeah. and it's. But I think it, it's so good. Like, yeah, we we had this, we had this last week talking about Axel Rhodes as well, didn't we? Or the other week when we were talking about, Axel yeah, Rhodes. we did. It, it's yeah. Like, not everyone yeah. likes his voice, yeah. but I think like the range that that guy's got is amazing. But it's the passion as well. Like he he yeah. sounds like he means it. There's um, there's a band. I don't know if you guys would listen to. Them. They're a pop punk band. They've actually, I think they broke up last year. They were called Coast to Coast. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm aware amazing band i think a few of them including the singer have now gone off and they've got a new band called cartoon oh, okay. head but um but you listen to them he's got the thickest strongest brummy accent <laughs> you've ever heard in your life and like it is quite when you very first hear it it's mm. a little jarring yeah, yeah, like, yeah, that yeah. Is so different but oh my god honestly it's so good and it's the you can hear the passion in his voice and that trumps it for me i think with strong vocals like as in like sounding they can be quite divisive in, in a way. So like, yeah. and I think, I think Billy Corgan's a good example of that. Cause like, you know, like I don't, sometimes I laugh, I don't know about his voice, but then at other times it's, it's a really, it fits and it kind of all kind of clicks. Yeah. It's yeah. the voice. That's it. And like, I can imagine, I, I, I guess not, not again, not lumping them together at all, but like, cause I hate him for lots of other reasons, but this, but like Morrissey's another one. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean, yeah. Morrissey's kind of like he's got a quite a divisive voice, isn't he? Where like, yeah, people either really like it or it's like, what is this to add on about? Yeah, but I think that's it. even that in itself as music as a whole and art, art in general is important. I think I would rather someone hate something I've made than be indifferent to it. Yes, yeah, they call that. Well, I I don't because I quite like it, but, but the Coldplay factor, isn't it? It's like yeah. people just it's just it's just nothing. It's just there, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Like I would, ha- I hate the idea that you put something out like, um, and it just wouldn't get any response, or it'd be, yeah, it's all right, it's all right, you know. No, I agree with you there, mate. Um, yeah, I think, I think he is. A, I, I do like it. 
90 percent of the time um but he i can equally can understand why people would be turned off by his voice so thank you very much for listening to our little run through of siamese dream by the smashing pumpkins i think we've done it justice it was nice to have a professional opinion today so thank you very much ryan yeah cheers ryan uh, thanks mate um, what what are you, is the dinner. studio in that is that all on social media in that is that yeah yeah so it's uh i want to say it's ar studios on facebook and it might be ar studios uk on cool. instagram but we come up anyway white logo uh black tax it also comes up under cool. Alt republic to all of that in the show notes and stuff for you so thank you very much for awesome. joining us to talk about that i've had a lovely time sam's had a nice time i have yeah. indeed um, yeah uh and, you- and I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find us at Records on Bands on Instagram. That's where we are mostly now. And we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bro. <laughs>